The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the Bethany he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten or have kids in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join the the volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time at uh, Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. thank you Michael it's a lot of words he just read and so um, that is what you call whiplash 
We've been in uh, Galatians 5, looking at the fruit of the Spirit this summer, and we have transitioned from looking at one word a week to looking at 25 verses as we jump back into Mark. And so uh, we are in it. Let's jump in the deep end. So let's, let's get our swimmies on. Um, but what has kind of led us to Mark 11? That's where we are. That's what we just read for us, the opening scenes of Mark 11. And it's that Mark is um, telling us Jesus has come and he's king. In chapter 1, he says the, the gospel of the kingdom, that's what Jesus brings, the good news of the kingdom, that the king is here and it's good. And it's, it's, it's um, kind of this victory word of, of a militaristic word of we're winning. This is good. And then uh, we hear and see kind of chapters 1 to 6, 7-ish, uh, these teachings about how Jesus teaches in, in his kind of home region of Galilee. And then uh, we see in verses chapter 7 to 10-ish, him do those things, but him do it with the intent of showing his disciples, hey guys, this is who I am. I'm, I am, I'm the one who's everyone's been waiting for, and, and this is me. And so Mark is somebody who is, like the words of Elvis, a little less conversation, a little more action. He's all about moving forward in the story. And so uh, we see here a lot of movement, and yet he gives us detail, and we'll look at all of it. But, but we see here that Mark is trying to show us that this familiar story, it's read at Easter a lot, the triumphal entry, and then a little after it. We read for Palm Sunday. It's showing us why Christ came, why Jesus came. And it's this. He came to be nothing so we can have everything. Jesus came to lose so we could win. It's simple as that. This is a very familiar story probably to some people. It's certainly not the first time you've heard it, maybe. Um, So with a familiar story, it's important that we take a breath and recognize we need new eyes and we need to be surprised by what the Lord has for us in this passage. We'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at how he comes, what he reveals, and then what he offers. How he comes, what he reveals, what he offers. Let's pray as we uh, begin to study God's word this morning. Lord, in a familiar passage, it's easy just to put cruise control on, kick back. And yet, Lord, uh, you wouldn't ask that of us. May we this very day bring our lives into this room not because of any words I have to say, but only because, Holy Spirit, you move when we read these words of life and truth, of goodness and glory. When we encounter what you have for us this morning, may we be changed and say, this is the king who rides on a donkey. This is the king for me because he's come for me. We pray all this, Christ, because you are reigning right now on your throne. Pray in your name. Amen. So first, how he comes, how Jesus comes in. This is the beginning of the end. Mark will spend the last six chapters of his book looking at seven days of Jesus' life, the last seven days. He will spend 38% of his book looking at .06 of Jesus' life you got to probably think it's probably an important 0.06. 
And so this is the beginning. It's kind of that first domino to fall, and it's the triumphal entry. And he's not a detailed guy. He's fast-actioned, and yet he gives us kind of glimmers of detail that are, are weighty. They're deep. And so here in this triumphal entry, as Jesus comes in as king, and they, reign, and they, they, they acclaim him as king, Mark shows us the route, the route of the triumphal entry. And it's, it's from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and the temple. That he's going from this mountain into Jerusalem. And this Mount of Olives is not just an elevation and just kind of a convenient hill. In Zechariah, this Old Testament prophet, he says, when Jesus comes back, when the Messiah comes back, he will come down on the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going to come. I won't tell you when he's coming. People get in trouble. But uh, he's going to come there. Jesus is leaving the place that he knows that when he returns victorious, he's coming there. And he's leaving that place and going into the place that he knows he will die. That's the route. The mode. He hops on a donkey and he rides in. Now, uh, it's often when a king would parade into a city and people get all excited. It's like the, you know, uh, the Super Bowl winning team. Uh, they have this big parade. It's good to have a parade and celebrate. And so it's very common. And yet he chooses a donkey. That is the equivalent, if you're a motorcycle person, hopping on a radio flyer trike and riding into Sturgis. It is equivalent to riding the tiny tyke uh, red and yellow thing that we all skinned our top of our legs on as a kid into Monster Jam. I mean, it's, 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 it's nothing. He chooses the vehicle of a child, a small little donkey, as the king to ride it on him. And Zechariah, also this Old Testament prophet, says in 9-9, chapter 9, verse 9, he says, See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. His mode is not glamour or flashy. It's righteous and victorious, comma, lowly. His path, we see Mark tell us, is these cloaks, and it's uh, reminiscent of in 2 Kings when Jehu, this Old Testament king, rolls into town. He's pronounced king. They throw cloaks on the ground. They're saying, here's the path for a king. We hear the noise of the situation that Mark tells us, that the people are crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This little tagline that's in uh, Psalm 118. The psalm about the Messianic king, that when Messiah comes, it's going to be like this. And they're literally taking those words and putting them in their mouths and saying them of Jesus. And then lastly, kind of in the background, the time is Passover. It's a season of Passover, which means 2.5 million people are flooding into Jerusalem to remember and commemorate the Passover, which happened in Exodus, where God uh, delivered the people out of uh, Egypt, and they delivered them to the promised land. And they remember, God did this for us. God did this for us. Look what God does. Look at our God. Look what our God does. There's 2.5 million people there. And yet this guy riding in a colt on a donkey comes in, and all eyes are on him. All this imagery and prophecy is all there and it's stout. And yes, we have modern ears and it's kind of a, an ancient text. And so we, we need to recognize those differences. But all of that prophecy and all that imagery is not there to show us that he's not powerful. It's there to show us that he's purposeful. 
that Jesus comes in with great purpose, and that is, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior. I'm not going to get later on in this week and think to myself, boy, I'm really painting myself into a corner. Sorry, Pilate. He's intentional. There's purpose to it. Everything he does is with great purpose. And he's saying, I'm a king with great purpose in that I'm not going to fix this first century issue that you have, Jews, in Jerusalem. I'm the king who's come to fix all eternal issues once and for all. I'm here to set it all straight. That's how the king comes. And guess what? They want a king to come. They want a king to come, and it's all for the wrong, shallow reasons. That they're an oppressed people when the Roman government's over them, and they're saying, hey, we want to we chariot a guy with a war horse, with a big sword to overthrow the government. We want majority. We want power and prestige and notoriety and relevance. And we want this king to answer to us and us not to him. We want a king, and we want to win. My brother has five kids, and uh, he is uh, kind of in the midst of the fall ball, all right, fall baseball, sign-ups and registrations and teams, and he says, we are going to lose probably every game by 20 runs. And then he says, but you know what? I'm not in it to win, but it does feel good to win. And it does feel good to win. And here, the Jews are saying, we want to win because it feels good to win. We're tired of losing to the Romans. Jesus, bring it on. Let's do this thing. And here he's saying, how I'm coming is such an intentional way of fulfilling. You want me to inflict death on your enemy? But even as you're my enemy, because of the sins that stand against you, I'm here to embrace it. I'm here to embrace death and take it on. The Jews' expectation and the reality of Jesus are conflicting. And isn't that true in our day? That in your life, that there's some expectation that you have of Jesus and the reality he brings, it's conflicting. That maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you said, I'm going to follow this Jesus guy and he really has done things for me, but it has not panned out the way I thought it would. Maybe you want to know more about him and you want to figure out, is he really as good as he thinks he is? Because what I've seen and experienced up to now doesn't attest to that. That it's so easy and there's a rigor in the Christian life that we feel this disenchantment, this this dissonance, this disconnection, that when reality doesn't meet expectation, we're disappointed and we're let down. And guess what, friends? That's why there's 38% of Mark talking about .06 of Jesus. The Passion Week gets such acclaim and notoriety in headlines because we are to take that dissonance we feel, the disenchantment we feel in the Christian life that it's so easy when we look at the hard street-level life of things and Jesus says, take those things and plug them into the next seven days. See what kind of king I am. Zechariah 9.9. See, he's a king that he's, he's righteous and victorious. And he's lowly and meek. I'm going to win. I'm going to win in such a way that you know and will never doubt. I'm here for you. 
One writer put it this way. Uh, By observing his life, his followers discover that when all the crowds, hosannas, is that me? Okay, there you go. Had fallen silent, when disciples and friends had left him, and after Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then it was that the Son of Man rose from the death, or from the dead, from death. Then he broke through the chains of death and became Savior. He's writing in now, getting all the publicity. His friends will leave him. He will cry out alone on a bloodied cross that he carried himself almost all the way. And after that, he became king. So when we feel our dissonance, disenchantment, worry, anxiousness, Jesus says, you can take all that and plug it into this week, this passion week, the story of the end of me that offers you a beginning. That's how he comes. He enters the city to lose, and he loses for you. That's how he comes. But second, uh, what does he reveal? There's a lot of chapter, or a lot of verses in this chapter that we've kind of trying to go over this morning, and it's, it's clear that what happens in these kind of multi-storied uh, vignettes of what Michael read for us, uh, there's a lot going on. And also it's clear that it's a PR nightmare. Uh, Jesus comes in as king, and he's going, and he's king, and people are saying, Hosanna, all this stuff. It's, it's time to take over. And he goes straight to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? And what's going on in the temple? Nothing. It says he goes down the triumphal entry, enters the temple, he looks around, and nobody's there. It looks like poor planning on Jesus' part. And he looks around, and, and he soaks it in, And he's seeing at this temple uh, what's going on. He's seeing this anticlimactic entry, and he's taken in the temple. And he's seeing that in the four courts of the temple, the largest, if you were a Jew, you could go to any of them. But the largest was the court of the Gentiles, 35 acres large. And Passover... Uh, there was marketplaces everywhere to sell these lambs to sacrifice. Over 255,000 lambs were sold Passover week. And he goes in there. Business is closed for the day. The New York Stock Exchange is closed down. And he sees it all and he says and realizes what it actually is. It's not just a marketplace to selling and exchanging lambs to slaughter. What he sees is this place of fat profits and large margins, all led by extortion and advantage. What's happening is that people are selling these uh, animals to sacrifice. And actually what's happening is that they're jacking the price up and making the wall very high to jump over. Marketplace of fat margin. He sees it and then he leaves. And he leaves town and he goes out of the city that he just triumphal entered into. And it, the next day happens. On the next day, he's walking and he sees a tree. And he sees this tree and it's this fig tree. And he looks at this fig tree and he wonders, I wonder if there's stuff on there. He goes over to the fig tree because he sees leaves and maybe there's, there's figs on it. He looks at this fig tree and realizes that there's no figs on it. And he says, you're cursed. 
Now, this doesn't look good for Jesus. Again, PR nightmare. And yet, he's telling them as he's cursing and showing as he's cursing this fig tree that yes, you look so uh, fruitful. You look like you have something to offer. You look like something's going on here in this fruit tree. And he goes up to it and he sees these leaves and no fruit at all. And in that day, fig trees would show leaves with fruit. You eat it, it's yummy. But when there is fruit, uh, leaves and no fruit, it means there's something wrong with the tree. It's diseased, it's decaying, and it's dying. And here Jesus is doing a, cor- a direct correlation between the fig tree and the temple he just observed and the temple he's about to walk into. All right, somebody said this about the, this kind of setup and scenario. That the leafy fig tree with all a promise of fruit is as deceptive as the temple which despite its religious commerce and activity is really an outlaw's hideout. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. Jesus curses the fig tree and then he goes in the temple. And as he goes in the temple in verses 15 to 19, we see how he gets to business. You can read with me. It says in verse 15 and on. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he turned over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. He's in the temple, and he's revealing the fact that the religious busyness in the temple shows how hollow it is, how fruitless it is. It looks fruitful, looks busy, and yet there's nothing there to offer. It's not doing the job it's supposed to. It's not giving people hope the way it's supposed to and intended to. The temple is there, in the first place and main place and only place to connect man and God. And here Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers. You're all about extortion and profit when this is supposed to be a place of prayer and worship and sacrifice. And isn't this a sobering reflection to look at both our own lives and the church itself, both Big C Church, and Little Sea Church, and note that, yes, it doesn't always equate between religious busyness and hollowed fruitlessness, but there is a great potential to be so-so busy and oh-so-fruitless and hollow. How do we guard ourselves from that? and it's repentance and dependence. The dance of the Christian life, to truly know what it's like to be in the perfect temple and be properly in the perfect temple is repentance and dependence. In Revelation 2, it's the last book of the Bible, the very end, shows us how the story ends. And in it, uh, John writes about these churches at the very beginning. And in it, John is kind of writing these different churches and, and kind of telling them, Um, hey, good job, and hey, you need to correct this. 
and he talks to the church in Ephesus in the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, hey, church of Ephesus, here's what you got going for you. You are you're, you're, you're uber um, uh, doctrinal. You've got your doctrine down. You know what to think and how to think it. And guess what? You've endured hard things and you've persevered through the hard things. Good job. Doctrinally pure, you persevered. But here's the problem, Church of Ephesus. You've forgotten your first love. And John says to them, repent and turn back to your first love. Church in Ephesus, you've forgotten the why behind the what you're doing. Turn back. Temple in Passover in Jesus' day, you have forgotten the why behind the what you're doing, and it's gotten sideways fast. To take those powerful imageries of the temple and and the passage we're looking at, and in, in Revelation 2, I also point you to the cinematic masterpiece of kicking and screaming with Will Ferrell. And in it... Will Ferrell is this meek, kind of pretty average, middle-aged guy, and all of a sudden, his son doesn't make the soccer team that his dad is coaching. So he starts to coach a team, and it's this motley crew of B-teamers, and they, they don't know how to play the game. Uh, they have big people, small people. Uh, it, it's just this motley crew. And he begins to coach, and they begin to lose, and lose bad. And all of a sudden, just like his dad, he wants to win. So he goes from this meek coach to all of a sudden putting this track suit on, this light blue track suit, and he and Mike Dick are coaching this little league soccer team. And all of a sudden, he starts breaking the huddle down with, break their clavicles on three, one, two, three, break their clavicles. And he starts going over to players that have fallen down and say, things he shouldn't say to little little uh, children. And he gets their heads and he shoves it in the ground. And then he gets a Bobby Knight style and gets a chair and throws it on the field. And then he goes over to the, the bench and he, he gets a little espresso and gets his caffeine fix. All this is happening. And then his son comes up and says, Dad, can I get in the game? He says, not right now, Sam. We got to win. We got to win. And he will realize it. But in that moment, we see as the audience, he has absolutely forgotten the why behind the what. That he really got into it to coach his son because he never knew as a son what it was like to be coached by his father. And he's become his old man. And because he wants to win like his old man, he'll stop at no cost. And we forget the why behind the what. Things get sideways fast. And Jesus is coming in and revealing the fact that Will Ferrell, uh, the church in Ephesus, and the temple have forgotten the why behind the what. And he's giving a correcting word and saying, this is my house. And you've made it a den of robbers when it's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations, for everyone who's not here. And all of a sudden, you're profiting. And what they do, instead of living a life and uh, responding in repentance and dependence, is that they react in such a way that they recoil. The scribes and the Pharisees want to kill him now. Jesus is public enemy number one. And they react to Jesus instead of repent. 
in a way that they recoil and distance themselves. And Henry Nouwen speaks into this thought, and he says this. The farther I run from the place where God dwells, the less I'm able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. The farther the chief priests and the scribes got from the real purpose of the temple, the more they got entangled in the manipulations and the power games. For Will Farrell, for the church in Ephesus, and for you and I, friends. And so this very day, I ask you the questions, where is the Holy Spirit prodding in your life and giving you a revealing word so that you can remember your first love? A sobering word, a clarifying word, a gentle touch to say, you may have forgotten the why behind the what you're doing. Jesus is here not to hurt you or harm you or take anything away from you. He's here to help you see yourself clearly and wholly. He's here to reveal things. And maybe it's, uh, maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe you are so good and everyone else is so bad that all of a sudden you've forgotten your first love because I'm good. I don't need it. I'm well off. Maybe it's self-contempt that it's easy to hate yourself and drown out the voice that's calling you beloved. Because maybe hating yourself and self-contempt gives you a story to believe, and it's believable. Maybe it's a self-aggrandizing, that you are here to hype up yourself and promote yourself and think you're so great, so that maybe the voice at night stops and is just turned down a little bit. Maybe it's self-comparison, that if I was the other person, I would be better. I'm inferior. Or self-comparison of, I am so great, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And Jesus is here to tell us, remember your first love, the place of where you get the most importance. He's here to reveal that. But lastly, he's, he's here to offer something. Last idea, what does he offer? The next day after this temple and the fig tree and the temple again, uh, we hear what goes on. And his disciples say, hey, Jesus, we heard you curse this fig tree. And we, we, there's the fig tree right there that you cursed. Not right there. Sorry. Sorry, Stu. Um, it, it, they said, look, it's right there. And here's how that exchange goes. Verse 20 and on, it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whatever and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. His disciples say, hey, Jesus, you cursed that tree and we heard it, and now we see it's dead? Look, it kind of begs the question. Okay, can you explain this? 
And Jesus explains it by being what seems like the masterful question dodger. And yet he answers it right on the head. The fig tree with fruitlessness is symbolic of the temple, fruitless. When they ask about it, which begs the question of the temple, he's saying, here's what you should do. Have faith in God. It's not a do better or good up or change your ways. Or He's saying, this fig tree is supposed to have life. The temple is supposed to have life because you're supposed to have life. And what you should do in light of this withered fig tree, in light of this fruitless temple, is come right to me. Pray to me. Because I'm the kind of king who rides in lowly on a donkey. I'm the kind of king that flips the tables. I'm the kind of king who has open arms for you. That Jesus is here to say, I will give you a costless intercession. Come to me and pray. And it will cost me everything. And it will be worth it. Costless intercession between God and us via Jesus, and it will come at a total cost of him because he's saying, I'm the temple. Where God and man meet, it's me. Come to me. I'm the connection. I'm the conduit. I'm the tabernacle. I'm the temple. I'm the place that you know and experience God. I am he. And I'm, I'm not going to just go in the temple and flip the tables where the lambs were sold. I will be the Passover lamb for you. Now, when my blood is over your doorway, just like it was for the Israelites in Egypt, it's a statement of the fact that you belong to this lamb, and this lamb covers you. Henry Nouwen says this. He says, Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he didn't offer an ideology but himself. He's a revolutionary. He changed everything all because he gave everything so that we could have everything. Jesus makes a big fuss about the temple here. And he makes a big fuss about these den of robbers. That's the state of the temple because of this. He will let nothing stand in the way between him and his children. And you are a child. And he will let nothing stand in the way of you and him. Therefore, he says, come to me, pray to me. I'll give you everything you need. I've given you my life. What else is off the table? He's saying, I want you bad enough that I'm going to die for you. Therefore, you should be humbled. I should be humbled. And you're worth it to me to die for. Therefore, you should be emboldened. That nothing stands in the way between you and God. He stands with open arms saying, I'm the temple, I'm the tabernacle, I am the Passover lamb for you. Therefore, come to me. I'm that kind of king. Let's pray. King Jesus, take this familiar story. By the power of your spirit, convict and convince us of your beauty. You're not in the game of condemnation. You are in the game of showing us who you are and who we are. And, and our reaction to that is 
repentance and dependence and worship and awe. As you prick our hearts this very day, just as you did to those scribes and Pharisees, would you do it to us and remind us that everything is paid for. Therefore, you are so committed to seeing us home. Remind us of the why behind the what because you are our first love. Make it so, we pray in your name. You are so committed to seeing us home. Remind us of the why behind the what because you are our first love. Make it so, we pray in your name.